You're listening to KMUZ Turner. Visit our website at KMUZ.org to see our complete program schedule and learn more about supporting KMUZ. Welcome to the Forum, our weekly public affairs program. We edit and rebroadcast recordings of lectures, interviews, and presentations of public interest to the Mid-Willamette Valley. Find our Facebook page, The Forum on KMUZ, for upcoming topics and to leave comments. Today's forum is a recording of analysis by former Oregon Secretary of State Phil Kiesling, whose premise is that the state's primary system for selecting candidates for public office is broken. 2000 was the first year the state mailed a ballot to everyone, and 15 years later added the motor voter automatic registration for everyone who got a driver's license, thus ensuring high turnout in Oregon and a voting system that's been found in every study to be free of any sign of fraud. I'm very excited about being here today. This is one of my favorite people that's going to be speaking. Um, He is one of a handful of well-known political analysts who are respected by Salem City Club members and the public and is always welcome back uh, to speak on many subjects for Salem City Club. Uh, Today, we're going to hear from Phil Kiesling, former Oregon Secretary of State, who is proud of the many pro-voter policies that are maintained in our state, except for in one area, where Kiesling thinks Oregon continues to be what he calls a national laggard. That is our primary system, which Kiesling describes as broken. Now, Oregon still runs the so-called closed primary elections, by which voters are required to be members of a major political party to participate in choosing nominees uh, for key offices, including U.S. Senator, Congress, Governor, and State Legislature. Now, things have changed, and we have a lot of voters out there that are neither Republican uh, nor Democrat, and it seems like we need to do something uh, to make it more equitable for them. And because this topic is increasingly polarized politics everywhere in the United States and in Oregon, it's brought renewed interest to this subject. So we've asked Phil to return to City Club to enlighten us about our primary and uh, talk about a number of potential ways that we can fix the situation. Now, just to remind everybody, uh, Phil, uh, he's a Yaley, returned uh, from his most recent job as director of the Center for Public Service in the Marco Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University. Now he devotes most of his time as founder and chair of the National Vote at Home Institute. Kiesling was an award-winning journalist in uh, Washington, D.C. and Oregon. He served as state representative. He was appointed by uh, the governor, Barbara Roberts, at that time, appointed secretary of state. He ran again. He was elected. And then he was reelected to that position. And uh, just to remind folks, the secretary of state is oversight of the state election system. So now I give you Phil Kiesling. Thank you very much, and thank you, uh, members of the Salem City Club, for the opportunity to be back and uh, talk about uh, uh, a subject that's dear to my heart, which is Oregon's election system. And before starting my slides, I want to put into context uh, why I called the current system, quote, broken. Many states would look at Oregon at the turnout in our primary elections, which typically is around 40% in a midterm and even higher in presidential, and say, what's the problem with that? Our primary election turnout is closer to 20 to 25% of, of registered voters. We do better. And I think we do better in large part because of a topic that we've talked about before when I've had the chance to share with the City Club, which is Oregon's vote at home system in which every active registered voter is automatically uh, mailed a ballot. The primary system poses a set of challenges, especially in a vote at home system, because in most states you walk into a polling place on a given election day and you just simply decide who you want, uh, which party you want to pick a ballot from. Um, And that's not the case in Oregon because of course people don't walk into polls like they used to. 
So what I'm going to do today is first talk about why I think the system is still, quote, broken, even though our turnout is higher than in many states, and share some thoughts about what possible ways to improve that system might be going forward. And of course, there's just 74 days before Oregon's next primary election on May 17th. Not that any of us are counting, of, of course. Let me just start by saying, how are people registering to vote today by political party? And this is a slide that John Horvick of DHM Research has prepared that I think is especially telling. The yellowish line on top are the percentage, the number of people registered by who are not affiliated or in a, a minor political party like the Independent Party of Oregon, Libertarian Party, uh, and others. The blue line, of course, is Democrat. The red line is, of course, Republican. And then below, you can see the age. And what you find is that very, very few people who are below really the age of, of, uh, of 30, let's say, uh, pick a political party. In fact, we've reached the point, and I'll get that to another slide, where uh, there are more people registered as neither political, major political party than there are either Democrats or Republicans. 1.2 million registered as a non-affiliated voter, that's most of them, or another 200,000 or so in various minor parties, about a million who are Democrats, and about 730,000 that are Republicans. But it's not until people are roughly at the age 60 that you start getting more people registered in a political party. And you can see that with the blue line to the right, uh, 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 Democrats um, uh, outnumber Republicans and they outnumber those in a different political party. And this shows you aggregates of how the trend has changed over time. So I was born in 1955. I think about 2% of Oregonians in 1955 were not either a Democrat or a Republican. Um, things began to creep up in the 1970s and really went up between 1974 and 1980. You might remember there was an independent candidate for president, John Anderson, ran um, in the year that Jimmy Carter lost to Ronald Reagan. It then flattened again, um, uh, but then really took off uh, really after 1990. And to the point today where you can see that 40% now are non-affiliated or other, 35% Democratic and 25% Republican. When we talk about how, again, age dominates, these are the voters to the right that are 65 and older. And you can see slight advantage to Democrats versus Republicans, and only one in five is a non-affiliated voter. But 50 to 64 begin to see how it condenses 33%, 30%, and now 37% are something, are something else. 35 to 49, um, still 34% Democrat, but now 20% only are Republican, and the others have gotten to 46%. And of course, the group that has the most at stake, arguably, about elections in the future, 18 to 34-year-olds, um, uh, uh, more than twice as many of them are Democrats and Republicans, but the non-affiliated voters and others are twice as many as there are of Democrats really dominating the system. Now, in a state that let anybody on election day walk into a polling place, even if they're registered as non-affiliated and say, hey, which ballot do you want, the Democrat or the Republican ballot, there would not be quite the problem. Um, because those non-affiliated voters and perhaps even the minor party voters too, state laws vary, uh, could just simply become a Democrat for a day or a Republican for a day. New Hampshire is one of my favorite states for how they have uh, contorted themselves to allow non-affiliated voters to participate. We're all familiar with the famous New Hampshire presidential primary, which is often seen as determinant to who's actually gonna win the nomination of their respective parties. Win in New Hampshire, it's really hard to lose the nomination. It's largely been true over the decades. In New Hampshire, I can walk in at eight o'clock in the morning as a non-affiliated voter. It's roughly about 45% of everyone in New Hampshire is in that category. Um, and I could decide today, this presidential race, I think I'll weigh in on the Democratic side. 
And I do. I technically register as a Democrat at 8.02 a.m. and go in and do my duty, come out of the polling booth at, let's say, 8.05. And under New Hampshire law, the polling places are required to give me the opportunity to register back. And in fact, over 80% of the people that do that do it on the spot. So that famous New Hampshire primary in which the partisans of both political parties have an inordinate role in choosing their nominees. Well, many of the voters who make those decisions are literally members of that political party for less than 10 minutes. So I mentioned turnout and how we do better, but you can also see how we could do a lot better than we do. The green line above is turnout in presidential generals and midterms. Midterms almost always lag by uh, 10, 12 points behind a, general, a presidential election. Obvious reasons for that, presidents tend, elections tend to attract more voters. And the same holds true in the primary elections because Oregon does have a presidential primary uh, at the same time. Now, in most of the last 20 or 30 years, the Oregon presidential primary has had little to no impact on who is actually chosen. We used to be a big player. Go back to 1964, 1968, and you can see what those huge turnouts were, 71, 73%. Well, that was back when very few states had presidential primaries. And even though ours was in May, it mattered a lot. It was one of maybe six or, or eight. What has happened over the decades is more and more states have not only gotten on the presidential primary bandwagon, but they've scheduled the primaries even earlier than Oregon. And in fact, the majority of primaries now are held in March. Uh, Super Tuesday, um, uh, for example, is I think over a dozen states now. And so by the time the race gets to, to May, it's usually typically over. Now, one big exception was in 2016 uh, when Hillary Clinton and um, uh, Bernie Sanders were still kind of neck and neck. 2008, Obama and Clinton were neck and neck, at least in the Democratic uh, uh, primary, and you saw a higher than usual spike. But in 2020, it was clearly over by then, and we fell to 47%. And in the midterm, it's 34%, just one out of three voters participating. Well, what does that mean broken out by party? Well, again, most states would, would kill for having 63% of their Democrats and 61% of their Republicans show up in a presidential primary year, and uh, uh, as they did in 2020. Um, but again, look at the non-affiliated voters, just 23%. And this gets to the nut of the problem. Those non-affiliated voters are not allowed under the various rules of both political parties to actually participate in uh, selecting uh, a presidential nominee. Uh, and so 23% of them vote. What do they vote for? Well, Oregon does piggyback local elections on top of presidentials so they can vote for judges, they can vote for mayors and city council people in many places. So they still have some things to vote for, but they can't vote for those high prominent offices. Now this is in a presidential year. Um, it's even worse in a midterm. So we break it down by age, just 26% voted in the 2020 presidential primary, 39% um, of 35 to 49% and so on. And so when you look at this picture, the median age of people actually voting in the highest turnout primary, the presidential election is 60 years old. Now the median age of the typical Oregon voter is about 48. So the whole system is very much skewed to people, quite honestly, of my generation. I'm 66. And while for selfish reasons, I might prefer to have people like me dominate uh, uh, elections, um, when I step back and think about it, I say to myself, well, when, when a certain age group dominates, are certain issues talked about more? And are certain issues talked about a lot less than they ought to be? So for example, uh, do we talk a lot about social security and protecting various programs that are predominantly geared to the elderly? 
Uh, and do we spend way too little time talking about things that are probably a lot more concerned to younger voters? Let's say housing, for example, and the affordability of housing, which you've heard about others much more expert than I talk about. Um, and of course, by age and by party, when you break it down two ways, the skewing becomes even more dramatic. Those young people who bother to register as Democrats or Republicans and see themselves that way, again, a distinct minority of younger voters, they'll turn out. And that's a combination, I think, of their strong party preference and getting their ballot automatically. But if they're not affiliated with a party, 18 to 34 year olds, just 12% of them uh, voted. And of course, they could only vote for local elections. By the way, in many states, non-affiliated voters who are 18 to 34 typically turn out at closer to 5%. So this gets back to the fact that Oregon is one of the few states in the country that has what is called a so-called closed primary. That means that I have to be registered in either the Democrat or the Republican party prior, and in Oregon it's 20 days, to the election as an actual Democrat or Republican party member in order to participate in that primary election. Now, the parties can, and over past years have at times, allowed non-affiliated voters uh, to at least choose to vote in their primary. Um, uh, but when you think about it, what do you have to go through if you're one of those non-affiliated voters? Well, you have to go online and re-register in order to get that ballot sent to you and you've got to do it in enough advance notice so that it so so that it happens. Now, this map is interesting because one of the simplest ways that you could make primary elections accessible to every single voter is don't even have party registration at all. Don't register voters in parties. Notice these upper tier states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, then go further south, Illinois. Ohio. These states actually don't register people by party. You're just a registered voter. Well, how do we just, those states decide who votes in a primary? Whoever decides they want to. It's also very common in Southern states, in places like Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Texas. Texas just had a primary election. Turnout was much higher on the Republican side than the Democratic side. Does that mean Democrats are a lot less motivated in Texas thinking about the general election in 2020? No, that just means there probably were a lot more closely contested races on the Republican side and, and, and there really weren't on the Democratic side. In fact, that was the case because Greg Abbott was running for governor in a contested race. Uh, he won it. Beto O'Rourke really had no opposition in his uh, effort to be the Democratic nominee. So 20 states don't even have party registration. In other states, um, the model that I mentioned is you can walk in, change your registration, uh, or just it's open to you under law and by agreement of the parties, and you can, you can choose a ballot. So if you look at the company we're in, uh, Florida, um, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, New Mexico, Nevada, and Oregon, a decided minority of states that say you must, as a voter, re-register um, in your party ahead of time. And it's because of that that we have so few uh, younger people in particular, because younger people are far more likely to be non-affiliated voters. You see the conundrum there. We've actually made it worse with a reform that I'm a big fan of, which is automatic voter registration. Most of the people that take advantage of that, if we know you're a citizen when you go to the DMV, we'll register you. Well, most of those people are younger. Most of those people don't, uh, most of those people, they're automatically put into the non-affiliated category and the voters then notify if they want, they can choose a party. Most people don't. So they stay as non-affiliated voters. So what are some of the ways that Oregon might go from laggard to leader when it comes to this particular aspect of our voting system? Because again, we pioneered voter registration by postcard back in the 70s. Most states required you to physically go to a county clerk in order to do it during business hours, during the week. We said, hey, to sign a postcard, send it in, we'll register you. We pioneered sending everybody a ballot automatically who were active registered voters, our so-called vote by mail 
system I now call a vote at home because most people return their ballots in person. So calling it vote by mail inaccurately suggests that most people mail it back and they don't. We were automatic voter registration state again, first in the nation to, uh, to do that. So what are some ideas? Well, the simplest is what I would call the Colorado thick ballot primary. Uh, Colorado is also a vote at home state. They mail everyone their ballot. So if people wanted to participate, they'd have to register ahead of time. Well, um, a couple of people in the community um, decided that might, there might be a better idea and they put a ballot measure out. What did that ballot measure do? Nothing other than simply say that if you're a non-affiliated voter, Colorado is going to mail you both ballots rather than none. <laughs> they basically said to the political parties, well, under law, the Supreme Court has indeed ruled that you cannot be forced against your will to count the votes of non-affiliated voters towards picking a political party nominee. And that's always been the big legal barrier. The state can't simply require this to happen and say to the parties, you have no choice. The parties are technically private organizations and a series of Supreme Court decisions, and you can agree or disagree with the logic, but it's been pretty definitive. You can't order them to accept the votes of a non-affiliated voter to be a nominee. So Colorado basically said to both political parties through this ballot measure, fine. If you want to pick your party nominees only by having your own registered party members be part of that, go off and hold a caucus or go off and run a privately financed election. Just don't ask us to pay for it with taxpayer dollar. If you want us to pay for an election, we're going to mail everyone their ballot and every non-affiliated voter gets both of them. Now they can only vote one, but they get both of them and they get to make the choice. Well, this passed in 2016, both parties opposed it, but got 53% of the vote. They tried it. And I think out of uh, a million voters who were not affiliated roughly, um, they got not 12% uh, turnout in, in which we did in our last midterm, they got closer to 26%. And I think only about 300 voters disqualified themselves by returning both ballots, because that was one of the rules you had to only return one. So I call that the thick ballot primary because it's a bit like when our kids, those of us who've had kids who go to college, they wait for the thick envelope of acceptance and the thin envelope usually means uh, they're out of luck. So here's a second idea, which is what is done in Washington state and in California. And this is an example of the ballot. And this is called the top two primary system. Now I actually in 2008, Oregon voters had a chance to vote on this system. It was something that former Secretary of State Norma Paulus, a Republican, and I as a former Democratic Secretary of State were chief sponsors on. And it, in a sense, was a version of what both our states, the North and the South do, which is everybody runs at the same time, including people that affiliate with Republicans, Democrats, other parties. You can see some prefer independent, some prefer Republican. Washington, by the way, is, is not a party registration state, so these candidates technically aren't registered themselves in a party. They just state their preference. And voters get to pick one, and then the top two go to the finals. Washington has run this system in variations basically for much of the last 60 years. Uh, an earlier version got thrown out by the Supreme Court of the US. They retooled it, and the current system they have today is one that Washington voters very much seem to like. Now, the top two, though, has what opponents say is a built-in problem, which is, well, what happens if you're in a district that is mainly a Democratic district, let's say, and the Democrats run 10 people because they all think they have a chance of winning and the Republicans get smart and only run a single candidate? Well, or maybe two candidates. Might there be a possibility in this heavily Democratic district that two Republicans end up being the top two because they're 15 and 12 percent of the vote is bigger than any Democrats get or vice versa? Flip it around in a heavily Republican district. This was an argument that was was thrown up at us. It happens very rarely, 
Um, but it technically, you know, could happen, which is why, I mean, a number of proponents have proposed a top four ranked choice primary. This just passed in Alaska in 2020. In a top four system, you rank who's your first, second, third, and fourth choice. You don't have to rank. You could just say, you know, Heather Olson's my first choice, and I don't know who these other people are, so I won't even rank them. But the way this works is that if nobody gets 50% as the first choice, then the candidate that does the worst, the fewest first choice votes is eliminated. And let's say it's Tiffany Strait is eliminated, but those that favor Tiffany Strait, uh, their second choice was um, Heather Olson. Well, Tiffany is out, those next tranche of votes go to Heather Olson, and maybe Heather Olson uses those votes to get above 50%. Or maybe Heather Olson is ahead, but nobody likes Heather Olson. Uh, uh, or, or put it this way, she's a very polarizing figure. You either love her or you hate her. Uh, Naomi Jackson, though, is kind of everybody's second and third choice. And it becomes possible for Naomi Jackson uh, to merge as a winner in, uh, in this. And while this is a general election ballot, the system goes for, for a primary election as well as, as, as a general election. And here's an example of just how this works. You eliminate the candidate with the first fewest first place votes. Those votes then get redistributed among the other candidates and you wait until somebody gets to 55%. Now you can also see some of the downsides potentially with something like this. You could have a lot of candidates and a lot of candidates um, uh, uh, running and it may take a while. Uh, New York City um, used this system for its mayor, and it, it took the elimination of a number of candidates before Eric McAdams won. He had about 30% of the first round votes uh, after the initial election and finally got over the 50% mark after a series of, of lesser candidates uh, were eliminated. So this is a map that shows briefly where ranked choice has been happening. Um, it actually, there is a place in Oregon, I'll mention in a minute, that um, uh, uh, is experimenting with it. Um, but it's more, more, more used in places um, uh, for mayor races. Minnesota, for example, uh, is a big user of it in mayoral races for Minneapolis, St. Paul. Same is true with California, Oakland, and San Francisco. Their mayors are elected in ranked choice voting. And this, in a sense, takes the primary uh, eliminates the primary election because in a ranked choice voting system, you can say everybody who wants to run, we're no longer going to, in a mayor's race that's nonpartisan, we'll just shift the entire election to November because if no one gets 50%, there's no need for a runoff now. We do it through ranked choice. If you're looking at partisan races, Maine is a good example of this. Ranked choice voting happens in both rounds. How we choose our nominees for political parties determined by ranked choice. Then you go into the general and you may have four or five, six candidates because you have minor parties. And now you do it again to elect finalists. You're tuned to All Volunteer Community Radio KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. More than 99% of the state lawmakers in every state in the U.S. are members of either the Democratic or Republican Party. But almost 40% of American voters today check neither when asked which party they're with, according to the former Secretary of State, Phil Kiesling. He gave an insider's look at the voting system at a Salem City Club luncheon virtual gathering recently, based on the premise that the primary system for picking candidates is at least partly broken. And the last thing that I'll mention in terms of a, of a variation about how you do the primary is the one that is uh, used in Oregon in Benton County. It's called a star voting system. Mark Fronmeyer, the son of former uh, Attorney General, uh, the late Dave Fronmeyer, is a big advocate of this. And this doesn't ask people to rank. This asks people to say, how enthusiastic am I about these candidates? So in a star voting system, you score people on a zero to five basis, worst to best. And in this case, you know, this particular voter says, I love DeAndre. Um, I'm okay with Abby and Carmen, 
Ben, yeah, really don't like, but boy, Eric and Abby or, 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 or Eric, forget about it to me. You know, I, I don't even care about Eric. Um, so if you think about what this is, this again is a way to, in, in a sense, eliminate a primary election, say that we're going to run all this in November instead, and we'll add up all those votes, four votes, that's a four, one is a one, you across, let's say 100,000 voters you might have, or, um, um, you know, someone getting 300,000 votes. In this case, I think they may, maybe there's 200,000 uh, voters who could give five to everybody and add up to a million, they don't, but Carmen beats Ben and, and, and becomes a finalist. But at the end of the day, it turns out that though, uh, that Carmen also was preferred by more people than those who preferred Ben and she wins but it actually could be the other way around. It could be that Carmen emerges first uh, among the two, but then Ben ends up winning because Ben is preferred by more people versus Carmen. Um, sounds a little complicated. It is more complicated than just simply voting for a single person, but that's another way to deal with, uh, deal with the issue of the primer. So I'm gonna stop here in order now to switch to, to, to take questions. Um, my purpose here, as you can probably say, is not to say, what do I personally think would be the best uh, way to go about doing that? Although I'll offer that if anybody asks where I happen to be thinking at the moment. But really, I wanted to get people to think in advance of a primary that is not going to be any different than what we've done in the, in the past, how we might start the conversation and go forward to, to 2023 in the legislature and beyond. We're on the cusp of having a historic gubernatorial election in which there's a very high likelihood that for the first time since 1930, for example, we might have a winner who gets far less than 50% of the total vote, might even get less than 40%. We'll have a Democratic nominee and a Republican nominee, and Betsy Johnson running as an independent candidate is all but certain to get on the ballot uh, through an initiative, a petition process. And so if you think about a three-way split, potentially an electorate, the next governor can only have 35% of, of, of the total vote. And uh, in some of these versions, you would, in a sense, uh, eliminate the primary uh, entirely. Some of these versions, you would have a system in which Betsy Johnson would also be running in May. And uh, you might have that up to four candidates running and then do a ranked choice vote come, come, come November. So I think what will happen over the next seven months will put into stark relief um, uh, what some of the possibly um, strange things, unusual things that could happen uh, with Oregon's election system that I think will lead people back to look at how does the primary system actually factor into this. And the final thing I'll just say before taking questions and why I think this matters so much is that when you have a state in which people increasingly sort themselves into places with living with like-minded politically oriented people. I live in Portland that probably went 90% for uh, Joe Biden in the last election. There are parts of Oregon that went 90% for Donald Trump in the last election. Well, in the legislative districts and communities like this, the, really the election is over based on who wins the dominant party primary. So if you think about 60 House seats and 70 and 15 Senate seats up in 2020, I would argue that probably 60 of those 75, it matters less the November election. It matters who wins the primary. And the primary election has become the one that politicians more and more focus on um, in terms of their own views, who they cater to, the issues they talk about, the issues they don't talk about. And, and I would argue when you can win election to the office by simply winning the first round by going to a very uh, uh, one just one half of the uh, equation that it does skew the conversations that we have in our ability I think to govern ourselves as effectively as possible so with that um, thank you for your patience and I'd love to take questions 
Thank you, Phil. This is Cindy Condon, and I'll be the moderator for the Q&A today. And before we get into the questions, I just want to review quickly um, the process for asking questions. All registered attendees logged in on a computer, iPad, or other device um, have a raise hand icon or button on your screen. If you have a question to ask of, of Phil, please click on the button to raise your hand. People will be called on as time permits. Your microphone will be activated when you're called on, but you must click on your own microphone icon on your screen to be heard. Time is short, so please be quick with your questions. You may also write a question using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, and I will read it if time permits. If you are joining us by telephone, please press star nine to raise and lower your hand and star six to mute and unmute your phone. So um, with that, let's get started with our first question, which comes from Michael Dwayne Brown. Phil, if you could choose what vote, choose what voting registration primary method would you prefer? <laughs> well, thank you for that. We'll get that out of the way. Uh, uh, when, when former Secretary Paulus and I uh, did the 2008 ballot measure on the top two, uh, we improved it relative to Washington and California. We said that since we're a party registration state, if you happen to be a candidate registered in a political party, that information would be put on the ballot. Um, and if you wanted to accept the endorsement of a political party, that could also get on the ballot. But if you didn't want it, you wouldn't have to. So you wouldn't want to have the socialist you know, party you know, endorse a Republican and force that to be on the ballot because you'd get mischief. But during that period of time, um, uh, it dawned on some of us that if you could do something like rank choice and up to four uh, first round would make sense. And, um, and rank choice really wasn't much talked about in 2008. And now I think it's gotten a lot of acceptance. And why I say up to four is that I think there ought to be a threshold. You may be very small, 2% of the total vote. To, if you're one of the top four, you don't want to have two candidates running and six write-ins. And suddenly you have to find the number three and number four out of the pool of write-ins. Um, and many of the write-ins are imaginary people like Mickey Mouse. Um, but I would, I would, I would, you know, if I had to pick any of them, would pick an up to four uh, uh, in the May. Uh, everybody runs in the May round. Uh, you could vote for one, but then you pick up to four, and then you do rank choice to try to get uh, to fifty percent, what people would prefer. But I'm, I think it's, I, I like the idea of of letting local governments experiment, which is why I like the fact that Benton County, for example, decided they wanted to do a different version of, of rank choice. Nonpartisan elections is a little easier and then partisan be, uh, if, if you're going to do a system like that, I believe. But that'd be the, the next thing I would choose to kind of look at what Alaska has essentially done. Um, because if you're up to four, you know, there's more of a chance that you're going to you're going to still get some of the minor political parties have a chance to at least have their candidate out there and gives them a chance to to show their stripes. And, and maybe over time they get more support. Um, um, so I would not copy the top two again. I think top four with ranked choice voting is an improvement. The biggest impediment to that would be you'd have to invest in technology with the local election officials to make sure that you could count the ballots correctly and quickly and and uh, implement that. So you'd have some planning to do, but Maine has done it. And I think so far they've shown that it can have real value. Okay, thank you for that. So this one from Tom Shurman. Mr. Kiesling, great presentation, thanks. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this potential criticism of an open primary or general election. Such systems, as you've noted today, disadvantage candidates who are very liberal or very conservative, and thus have little chance of winning over more moderate candidates who are favored by more folks from various parties, for instance, in a ranked or star voting system versus their chances in a more traditional party primary. So well, it, it, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And this, this issue about you know an election system uh, do you look at it, whether you like it or not, through a frame of how your own political philosophy might be, you know, you're more liberal, you're more centrist, more conservative and, and the like. And I step back and I say, I think the first place you should start with evaluating an election system is the issue of participation. And the, the current system, which locks out the non-affiliated voter um, in particular, is one that really depresses participation. We could have, I think, 
with a more open system combined with our vote at home system, uh, literally, you know, the highest primary election participation in the country, and particularly where it would matter in midterm elections, um, uh, where everybody's on an equal footing. Because again, when the president's on it, you tend to attract uh, more voters. On, on the complaint about the, the, the liberal versus the con conservative, um, the star system, of course, lets people who are really enthusiastic on either side of the spectrum give those people fives and, and everybody else zeros so those people could score higher. I think that's one, one thing that you might peel more the star system if you, you have that in mind. But I also think a top four, if, if you, know, you can get to the finals with four uh, with you know 25 percent of the vote let's say you know let's say it's really core and then it becomes a matter like any election of, of convincing the remainder of the voters that didn't pick you as a first preference why even though you might consider yourself more liberal or conservative why that's something that ought to be embraced by people that may not consider themselves these are good ideas and i have now a chance to to explain them in, in greater detail and, and try to convince you so I don't think you necessarily produce a system that you know drives people to the to the center automatically. I think what you do is you give people two rounds to make their case, and I think there's there's value to that. Right now, people are making their case in only one round and only making their case to the people in their own tribe, as it, as it were, probably wrong word, but their own uh, uh, sector, and that's all they need to do. They don't have to pay any attention to people that might look look differently than them. I think our politics just be healthier, whether even if you're very liberal or very conservative, to say this is why I'm right. This is why I think you ought to support me as as well, uh, as opposed to people that might be more centrist. Oh, they're a bunch of mealy mouth, uh, you know, not saying anything. I'm at least taking a stand on something. So again, let's experiment and see what happens. But I think the current system just doesn't service uh, service as well as other systems could. So I'll move on to a Q&A question from George Dyer. Are our political parties in decline since they even have less control over primaries? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, obviously over the decades in Oregon, fewer and fewer people have chosen to affiliate with a political party. And you, you're seeing that trend nationally. Um, parties themselves, though, still have a lot of power. Um, 99.9% of the people elected to state legislatures, there's 7,312 state legislators, I think, in the country, are either a Republican or a Democrat, uh, even though roughly 40% of Americans now consider themselves, uh, they pick neither. Polls that Gallup has done for decades show that uh, it's at an all-time high. It's actually closer to 50%. So if you step back from it, you would say that political parties have enjoyed an inordinate amount of power and still do under the system in which you're, you're, you know, the, the two finalists, uh, uh, even though there are other people on the ballot of minor part parties are almost always guaranteed to win. So I'm a believer. I happen to be a Democrat. I have very strong reasons for that. I also have some of my... You know, I have a lot of issues with my own party. I've, I think most people probably do at this point in either side of the divide. Um, but I think parties thrive best when it's about ideas rather than automatic affiliation. And I think more and more people affiliate with parties when they do, not because they love the party and its platform, but they dislike the other party even more. We've become kind of an anti anti-Republican or an anti-anti-Democratic uh, polity rather than a pro-Democratic party, pro-Republican party. And again, to the extent that the future is our young people, they're sending a very powerful signal that political parties from their standpoint are anachronisms. Um, they, they want us to move into, if, if not eliminate them, I don't think they'd argue that, but they want to have them not exercise such control over how the system works. So I think political parties are gonna to have to, in a sense, fight harder and compete harder for the allegiance of people based on ideas rather than automatic allegiance or anti-allegiance. I think that's actually gonna be, be healthier um, in the long run. 
Okay, thank you for that. And this Kathleen Harder did uh, uh, put in a question, which I'll ask on her behalf. It has to do more with campaign finance reform, but certainly touches on a primary system and a general and the cost to, of it. Now, um, this is from Kathleen. I'm in the current Congressional District 6 primary. Some running are putting millions of their own money, uh, plus millions from PACs are being put in to buy the election. What would you recommend to reduce the effect of big money on our political system and then to bring it back to the primary, a change in the yeah. primary system? What's the impact all of that put together would be? Yeah, Dr. Harder, that, that's also just a terrific question. Um, they're obviously two separate issues, but they intertwine. Uh, to talk about campaign finance reform for a second, we at least made progress with amending our constitution, which we had to do because of a Supreme Court decision by Oregon, to allow there to be campaign finance limits. And then it went right back into the legislature to write those limits, and they've been totally unable to. I would call it a really dereliction of duty um, uh, because, again, People on both sides of the aisle see it through the lens of which is going to hurt, help my party the most or my set of candidates or hurt the other side. And, and in the absence of limits, we continue to have no limits. Um, uh, and I think that's something people should be very upset about and need to work on. The, the way it affects the primary is that um, it, the argument was used against changing the primary. It's, I think, perverse. But the argument was that, well, if most people only need to win their primary to get elected and there's a lot fewer voters that they need and it's only one side of the party, well, they don't have to raise as much money. And when you open the system up to let non-affiliated voters run, they're going to have to raise a lot more money in order to get elected. Therefore, this is a really bad idea because it'll make a bad problem worse. Well, I understand the chain of what I'll call pseudo logic, but that's an argument to just reinforce why we need to profoundly change our campaign finance system. And right now, candidates uh, don't even you know, run because of all the money that they have to raise. And they don't run uh, as something other than a Democrat or Republican because if they don't win the primary, they have, they have no chance. So I think you'll see it, particularly in a top four system, you'd see candidates, particularly in that third and fourth slot, that might only get five or eight or 12% of the vote running grassroots campaigns without a lot of money, but at least now they're in the finals. And they're in the finals in a way that people already had a chance to be exposed to their ideas. Whereas right now those minor party candidates wait till the very end and, and it's hard to pay that much attention. So I, th I think we need to tackle both, both problems for sure, but I wouldn't let the one keep us from you know, doing the other. But your question is really important. We both, both desperately need to be fixed. And again, I'd say Oregon's a laggard on this as well. Uh, the other way we're a laggard. Uh, most states have limits of some kind. None is perfect, but at least they have limits. And I think we also maybe need to look at a form of public financing. In Seattle, for example, every voter is given a voucher for $25 uh, to give to a candidate of their choice. And uh, they don't, the voter doesn't get to collect the $25 if they don't give it, but the candidate that they prefer enough to say, I'll, I'll give you mine, can at least claim that money and, and not have to raise it through private uh, sector. So there's experiments there that we need to run as well. More to come. So our next question is from Bill Dixon. What are the implications of how the legislature is organized and operates if party labels are eliminated during voting? In states with open primaries, how have the two parties, how has the two party system in their legislatures evolved? Well, actually, um, in, in the system that I would prefer, um, and of course, we could just eliminate party registration period in a sentence like 20 other states, but short of that, uh, you would still, as a candidate, if you were registered in one of the parties, you would be listed as I'm a registered Democrat. Phil's a registered Democrat and Bill Dixon, let's say, is a registered non-affiliated voter. And, and uh, 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 Kathleen is a, a, a registered um, uh, progressive, let's say, making all this up, obviously. I hope I haven't offended anyone. Um, I'll say Ron Ekus is the registered Republican in this example. But we'd show that on the ballot. And if for some reason I didn't want that to be on the ballot, well, I would register. I would unregister in my political part. So voters would at least see that as a cue. They take it for what it was worth or not. Um, 
how it would affect the legislature in in Washington State and California, where they, uh, uh, you know, they organize, they caucus as Democrats, they caucus as Republicans. It's up to the individual legislators as to how they choose to uh, affiliate. And uh, that's kind of how it works in those states. So I think you'd still have parties in the legislature as they conduct their business. But if you think about the difference, okay, in the current system, like I'm a Democrat, let's say I conduct my business as a Democrat, I then stand for re-election, well, I better have been sure that the members of my own political party really like me because I've taken, let's say, 20% of my votes people really disagree with or the interest groups that finance those campaigns get back to campaign finance. If they're really mad at me for those two votes out of the 10, they could take me out. Okay. And look at what's happening nationally, particularly in the Republican Party, is that if you don't give fealty to the big lie about the, quote, stolen election of 2020, which is a total fantasy, okay? But if you don't give fealty to it and say, yeah, it was stolen, you're in danger now losing your Republican primary, if, if that's what matters. And in a more open system, you could, like Liz Cheney, let's say in Wyoming, say it was a lie. You know, I'm not a Trump person. I am a Republican. And I'll be on the ballot with everybody else. And, you know, Democrats can vote for a Democrat. But if, uh, you know, Democrats don't get to the finals, then, you know, some Democrats can vote for me. Whereas in Wyoming right now, um, uh, and there are actually some people making it harder for people to switch parties in order to vote for Liz Cheney who aren't uh, traditional Republicans. So it gives that legislator, I would argue, more freedom to at times look certain people in the eye and say, on this vote, I'm, I, I can't be with you. I think the better public policy is over here. And I'd like to see Democrats and Republicans be more willing to do that. And that's not necessarily going to the center. Sometimes that's just going to a whole different place that is, let's say, common sense rather than fealty to a particular viewpoint or, or interest group. Thank you for that. And I'm afraid we have just time for one more question. And this from Kathy Lincoln, if a local jurisdiction here in Oregon wanted to start electing its mayor or, or by ranked choice voting, what would be the process other than amending the local charter? Would county elections officials have to purchase new technology for vote counting? Does the Secretary of State weigh in? What, what would be the process if you wanted to start? Yeah, Kath Kathy, it's a, it, it's a, it's a great question. Um, the legislature could certainly facilitate that. And there were some bills, although I don't think any of them got very far uh, to do that. Um, I think that the state ought to be actually paying for many of the election costs that now is uh, borne by local governments um, in, in including things like upgrades of equipment. And the new technology uh, is much easier to allow you to make adjustments like things like ranked uh, ranked choice voting. Thank you so much, Bill. You've given us a lot to think about, especially as the election season opens up. You've been listening to another review of Oregon's voting system by the man who used to run it, former Secretary of State Phil Kiesling. KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program. The entire panel discussion and Q&A is permanently posted in the City Club archive at SalemCityClub.com. This is Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting local news and public information for the Mid-Willamette Valley. This program is aired on Friday at noon and repeated Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening.